This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. One of the conversations we've had throughout the week, this week, has been the return to work. You're going back. Have you heard that? Maybe you haven't even been able to stop working. Can we have a quick hand for everybody who works in healthcare who has yet to be told you can go home and stay home? Some jobs cannot be done from home. Others have resumed after either layoffs or just remote working, and you may be going back. Well, if you are, are you ready to put on the nice clothes again are you ready to get yourself looking how you remember that working from home i have counted it up in the last year and what would it have been five months now i've worn pants five times i'm not wearing pants now now i'm wearing shorts but every day is a shorts day i'm i have not worn and i have not missed them if I'm getting ready for something where I've got to wear a suit or a tux or something like that, I'll put on the top part and I will leave the bottom part until the last second. I am not putting on pants until I'm ready to grab my keys. Sometimes I grab my keys first. I don't like pants. But you may have to wear pants if you are going back into the office. So how are Canadians feeling about all of this? Well, there is a new survey out that has talked about fashion sense and how Canadians are feeling about fashion that could have to bring them back into work. And we're lucky enough to have with us Wayne Berger, the CEO of the Americas for IWG, as we talk about the survey results. Wayne, are you wearing pants? Mike, I'm going to let you know a secret. I'm wearing shorts as well as we speak. Yes. But, yes. but I look really good up top. And and as do I. You know, I was on, I had to run upstairs. I talked before news about the meeting that we have with our entire staff before, you know, everybody's kind of doing the things of the day. We have it in the morning. And there I was. It was, it was you know, right before the meeting. I ran upstairs. I grabbed a different shirt. I put it on. I looked a little bit more presentable. But from the waist down, I was still wearing gym shorts. Okay, let's talk about what this survey has found, Wayne. Uh, Canadians and their comfy clothes. Can we part them? Well, my, well, Mike, you're exactly right. Look, you take a look at the survey results. Forty percent of employed Canadians are saying that the days of the suit are over. And based on those survey results, if we apply that across the landscape of of employed Canadians, that would represent seven million Canadians that aren't interested in moving forward and formal workwear moving forward. We used to have casual Fridays. I don't know. How casual can you get? Because ultimately you have to talk about it sometime meeting clients or dealing with guests or you name it. And uh, presentable is important. I wonder if our definition of presentable will change through all of this. You know what's interesting? So when you just shared your analogy, the reality of how you're dressing, that is actually the future just like where people will choose to work or need to work, the future is flexibility and the state of dress code is flexibility as well. 
we're moving as a global workforce, and it's no different in Canada, we're moving to purpose-driven work. And where we will work throughout the day will be based on what's required of us at that very moment. And you know what's interesting is what we wear will also shift. How you just walk through your day is exactly what I'm doing. It's exactly what millions of Canadians are doing. They are adjusting their, their, um, their, their work style based on who they happen to be meeting with. Now, of course, so much of what we're doing right now is over Teams and Zoom, et cetera. So, so you're right. You're seeing this formal on top and informal on the bottom. But those types of shifts are becoming habitual, and we're moving towards a less formal environment but a more purpose-driven environment where we'll dress formally if it's required. But for the most part, Canadians have proven that they can be productive and engaged in a less formal, in, in, with, with a less formal workwear. And that trend's been ongoing before the pandemic. It's just been highlighted over the last 17 months because of the pandemic. We're talking with Wayne Berger, who is the CEO of the Americas for IWG. IWG is a company that helps millions of people and their businesses to work more productively. And it wasn't just clothing that you looked at. We've got to look at kind of work period. Wayne, when we talk about some of the things that you're seeing and some of the things that you were asking about with regard to even working from home, what sorts of things did you find? Well, it's... So what we're seeing right now for employees and companies, we are entering a renaissance period when you come to work. So number one, 77% of companies have or will be instituting a flexible working strategy for their employees, either now through to September when, when kids go back to school. What's interesting about that is there's a misnomer. People think that if they're not in a corporate headquarters every day, that it'll mean working from home. But the reality is only 13% of Canadians want to work from home every single day. We're social beings. We miss each other. We want to be able to leave our house, have our pre-morning uh, or pre-work morning ritual, and then head to an office. But what's interesting is close to 90% of Canadians want to actually be able to choose where they need to work every day. And they want to work closer to home, which means a five to a 15 minute commute. The idea of traveling to an office every day greater than the 30 minute commute is completely unpalatable for workers moving forward. And yet they don't want to necessarily work from home every day. So the future is flexibility. And with eight out of every 10 companies instituting flexible working moving forward, the other 20% that will maintain a draconian work policy where everybody has to come into the office will lose great talent because this is becoming a decision maker for workers moving forward. Interesting. And it's something that we've got to figure out how, how it's going to work. How do we look at hybrid and how do we figure out, okay, what is too much time at home? What is not enough time in the office? Is there any marker that you're going to be looking for to figure this one? I'm so glad you asked that question because we speak with companies every day who are looking at instituting hybrid and flexible working strategies. And they, they're turning to us for guidance. And then they're also turning to us for our, for our flexible and co-working locations. And I will tell you, right now, across, across North America alone, there are hundreds 
of definitions of return to work strategy. So there's actually not a clear marker, but what, what I will tell you is many companies are trying to market based on days. So companies are coming out saying, okay, we would like you to be in the office two or three days of the week. You pick the days or we'll help you pick the days for you and we'll coordinate it by department and by, by team so we can manage space safely as people return post-pandemic. And then the other time you can spend remotely whether it's at a co-working facility close to home or from home. So right now the marker is based on days, but what we're going to see, this is stage one of an ultimate evolution where flexibility will become more fluid. It won't be about days. Because I think people, companies are trying to determine, we need to give people flexibility, but we also want to be able to see them. We're going to shift as we continue throughout 2021 to 2022, less about days and more about this purpose-driven work where, where people will travel into an office when it's required, more of a high destination to meet, to collaborate, to brainstorm, to meet with their boss or amongst their team. And when there's time spent to, put their, to place their heads down and conduct some independent work, they can do that from home or they can do that closer to home from a co-working location. So what we're going to see over time is we're going to move from this marker of two days in the office, three days out, to more of a balanced schedule where come to the office when you need to be here, travel to your client's office when you need to be there, and then gather together with your team, either digitally or physically, either in the office or at a location closer to where you guys need to meet. A much more fluid schedule that will ultimately drive incredible engagement and productivity. Wayne Berger joining us, CEO of the Americas for IWG. And Wayne, maybe that's the way to look at one other aspect of this, and that is productivity from what you are wearing. The survey talked to people or asked people about how they were dressed and what that might mean for productivity. What did you find there? Well, so a couple of things we saw was that we discovered in the survey was, number one, state of dress was not a direct equation to productivity. Canadians have demonstrated that they can be incredibly productive and also engaged working from home. And that dress code was not a factor. They weren't more productive by putting a suit on or, or, or a, smarter, a smarter wardrobe. But what we are seeing in the return to work is this blending, this fusion of work, what's being deemed as smart casual in terms of work wear. So smart casual seems to be this, this direction in the future where it applies the casual fabrics, the elements, and some of the designs that we've all grown accustomed to and really liked working from home, but also making it a little bit more business-centric. So the clothing is going to be very, very comfortable, very, very focused on organic type of materials, but have that bit of uh, of a formal edge. So productivity was not lost, even though people were wearing you know, their Lululemons and and their hoodies a little bit more often than in the past. But that's starting to migrate over to more smart, casual um, work wear as we start to return back to a physical office. Wayne, we started off talking about how neither of us are wearing pants today. We're wearing shorts. I don't like wearing pants. I do like wearing ties. What do you think? Is that going to be gone in the future? Because people don't like ties. They're constrictive. I love ties. I I think the love of the tie is going to increase. And the reason why is because we're going to wear we're going to wear ties or, for example, women will wear their more more of a formal dress code 
when it's necessary and when they want to. Just like workplace is going to become a destination because work is becoming more ubiquitous, the work where is going to be more aspirationally oriented. So we're going to put a tie on when it's the right time versus just wearing a tie every single day. And that makes it a more pleasant experience and, frankly, picks us up a little bit. And then we get to enjoy our smart, casual workwear the other days. So it's going to become more appealing. Amazing the changes that could come out of what the last year and a few months has given to us. Wayne, thanks so much for the conversation today. Have yourself a great weekend. Have a great weekend, Mike. Keep wearing those shorts. I will. I will. I will. Wayne said it was okay. You heard. Wayne said it was okay. Wayne Berger, CEO of the Americas for IWG. Know what else could be on the way? A restaurant serving cannabis-infused food. This could be a thing. And you may have read at globalnews.ca or heard Andrew Graham on our newscast this week on 980 CFPL talking about this very story because Jeremy Smith in London decided to put together a petition. This is kind of where it had to begin. And... That was in order to kind of show proof that, hey, this is something that people would be interested in. There are a number of different things to look at here. And we thought, you know what, let's find out what the reaction has been to the creation of that petition and learn a little bit more about cannabis-infused food and some of the places where it certainly can make a difference. Please welcome to London Live, Jeremy Smith. Jeremy, how are things? Hey, how are you doing today? Jeremy, you were featured in all kinds of things this week, and your story was out there. What has the reaction been? What have you heard? Uh, it's been amazing. Like I, It blew up a lot faster than I ever could have expected. Uh, the best reaction I've been getting is the amount of people uh, reacting to the medical aspect of it, uh, the amount of people that, like myself, are using it for medicinal purposes um, that have medical issues, and it's they're in disbelief that this guy should be a thing and help them out. Um, and that way they don't have to have, you know, edibles for currently legalized for sugary treats and stuff like that. It'll actually be a nutritional meal that we can actually infuse cannabis into to actually help people. So when we're talking cannabis-infused food, we're not talking about gummy bears, gummy worms, cookies, brownies, things like that. What would cannabis-infused food, what would that be classified as? So give us some examples. Uh, so it, it all depends on what you want to order. Like the menu is going to range from, you know, your wings, your poutines, your your burgers, your drinks, your beverages. All that will be cannabis infused. Obviously, we're not allowed to mix alcohol with it, so there will be no alcohol in the establishment. Uh, it's just all going to be cannabis. So if you want to order just THC or just CBD or combine them both, great. Uh, but it also depends on what the legislation and regulations also come down to. But I, that's the suggestions I've made to Health Canada, Ministry of Health, and so on. Well, let's kind of delve into that story because it does have a personal element for you. And you've mentioned that a lot of people have contacted you with their own personal stories and the medicinal side of things. So how would cannabis-infused food help from a medicinal perspective? Take us through your story and then some of the things you've heard. So for myself, um, I actually was diagnosed with Crohn's and eosinophilic esophagitis last year. Um, I was put on prescribed medication, uh, one being prednisone. Uh, three weeks later, I started having difficulty breathing, swelling in my arm, like everything started not 
feeling right with my body. Uh, thankfully, I work at a hospital. I work at St. Joe's Hospital as a person exo. And uh, I went into Doc Health saying something was wrong with my body. I ended up collapsing, being a code blue. Um, it turned out I had double lung blood clots, one hit my heart. I had clots in my neck, arm, all from prescribed medication. Um, I was then giving uh, uh, Percocets to help with the pain. Um, and that ended up causing swelling in my brain around my pituitary gland and damaging my eyesight, um, sensories. I lost feeling in my face, tongue, uh, side of my body, on my, on my right side. Um, so while I was in the hospital um, constantly for MRIs and, and checkups and INR work, um, I'd always reach out to Health Canada, Ministry of Health, to kind of see what I could do on a natural path, and it just kept coming back to CBD, CBD, CBD. Um, so once I started inquiring more about it, I realized no one whatsoever is pushing for food aspect of CBD because I had blood clots. I could not smoke cannabis. Um, I have Crohn's, so I can't eat certain things. Um, so I was like, okay, well, let's work on something that's actually nutritional and benef- uh, beneficial for everyone else that actually has conditions kind of like myself. Um, and Or also break that stereotype of people who do not want to smoke cannabis. They can actually eat it and get that same beneficial health aspect of it. We're talking with Jeremy Smith. Jeremy's from London, and the end goal, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, could be a cannabis-based food restaurant or eatery we'll we'll discuss that in just a minute but jeremy you've you've laid out something that i mean this this was as life-threatening as things can get if you're talking about blood clots in your lungs and and in your heart what was it like going through that uh i try to you know be brave for my wife and my and my two children but all honesty i i you know i had some breakdowns in the hospital come to realizations of doctors telling me don't expect to live long um, life expectancy of people that actually have this are fortunate to be alive, but usually don't live as long as, um, you know, wait, I should have lived without it. Uh, so I'm thankful to be here. And now that I've had people coming to me telling me the same stories with medication side effects and now they use um, CBD oils, it, it realized, you know, this is something that actually is needed. There's over 300,000 people in Canada that actually use cannabis medicinally. So this could actually help a lot of people out for different things, you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, even cancer. Like there's just a wide variety of things that this could actually help with. Um, And working at a a retirement home, I see a lot of people actually using uh, cannabis to help with their arthritis and and stuff as well, right? So it's very beneficial. It would be great to actually give someone a nutritional value instead of just pounding, you know, sugar into their bodies that gives no... Uh, nutritional value but we also have to bring awareness to this as well like educate people on it Um, we need the government to step in educate uh, step up because we're losing a lot of people excuse me losing a lot of people uh, economy wise going all over the world uh, because they're leaving Canada because there's nothing here we're not allowed to do it so we're losing the economy um, especially now with COVID this is a perfect opportunity to have this uh, talk and debate so we can actually build the economy back up and offer jobs again as well Jeremy Smith joining us from London and has gone through some health issues that led him to CBD oil and what that can do to help medicinally and the idea that, hey, if you can't eat certain things, if gummy bears and gummy worms and brownies and those sorts of things are not going to be you know, something that you can use, what are the alternatives? So, Jeremy, as you began to deal with Health Canada, what did you find out? Uh, I had everyone loving it, loving this, like supporting it. Uh, they just didn't know how to go about coming to to bringing this to the table. 
so they directed me to the Ontario Cannabis Store, Ministry of Health, Alcohol and Gaming. Everyone loved the idea. They just didn't know where to go. So then I started reaching out to the House of Commons, Parliament, uh, MPP's offices, MP's offices. And it turned out the only way to do this is to start a petition. Um, so I started locally in London. I thought it was going to be, you know, 50% no's, but I've only had one no over 100 uh, cannabis retailers in southern Ontario. And then people started reaching out from, you know, Windsor and Kitchener and Hamilton. And so I just started expanding further and further, and it blew up to what it is today. Well, that is phenomenal. So then you had to show, basically, that you had you know that kind of support that you had enough people to say hey this this is something that could work so then the petition comes in tell us about the petition so the petition is just to change legislation uh so that way we can actually start discussing regulations so we can actually do this so the petition uh, unfortunately canada or sorry in canada uh federally it's online so people can just go on the house of commons website Sign the federal one, which is more Health Canada aspect for medicinal purposes. Um, the provincial one, Ontario is a little bit behind. Unfortunately, we do need handwritten signatures. So I started reaching out to local uh, cannabis retailers, asking for their assistance. Uh, they've all loved the idea. They all support the idea. Um, they kind of said the same thing. I, I found out that a lot of older retired people use it for medicinal purposes. Um, so then I realized there was a, a big... Um, area for me to actually get into. Uh, so when I started London and not receiving one no out of any cannabis retailer, uh, some of them do say you actually have to go in and ask for it uh, specifically. They're not allowed to promote it, but they will. Um, if you ask for it, they will let you sign it. Um, and then, yeah, the petition just wants to bring it to the light. You got nine MPPs on board currently to bring it to the House of Commons in the fall and try to fight for this petition and change the legislation. Sure. Well, let's see what happens there, and then let's say that legislation is changed. Give us the dream that you've come up with through all of this. What could be an end result? Oh, I would love, obviously, to have a franchise, uh, put it all over Ontario, Canada. I've already spoke to MLAs in B.C. Um, a couple of papers in B.C. have actually called me to interview as well. Um, everyone loves the idea, so if I could open up a restaurant, have people come in. I used to manage uh, a bar a security, worked in that industry for about 11 years. Um, so if people could come in just like a, you know, a restaurant, but come in and order CBD or THC, and obviously there's going to be limitations and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, have some people come in, enjoy some food, either leave feeling great or leave, you know, kind of like having a couple of drinks when you go to a, uh, go to a bar, um, kind of the same aspect as that. Um, I have reached out to multiple culinary schools so that way we can start the educational process of it. Um, a lot of the culinary schools are on board. Uh, some top chefs here in Canada are on board as well. And they're also doing their own thing, trying to educate people as well. So it complements what I'm trying to do at the same time as I'm doing the legality aspect of it. Great. Well, what's next on the timeline? What do we listen for? Um, I'm looking to aim for hopefully another month or month and a half. And then I want to collect all the um, petitions here in uh, Southern Ontario. And then I have to drop them off at the MPP's offices, and then they're going to bring it up to the House of Commons in the uh, in the fall. Well, good luck with everything. Anybody who hasn't heard the name that you've thought of for an eatery, lay it on us before we go. What's the idea? It is Lay Munchies. And I'm lay working... Munchies. That's correct. <laughs> and I'm also working on something as well called Munchie Meals. And it's going to be more drive towards uh, the health aspect of it. So that way, if you're at home, you can actually order a healthy meal and have it delivered to your house. 
so I've done proposals with Health Canada, um, and now I'm just waiting to hear back from you know their legal department to see if I'm able to start that now or if we have to wait for the petitions and legislation change. Well, Jeremy, it's a story we'll continue to follow. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today, and glad you're feeling a little bit better because you are feeling better, right? Uh, I have a lot of health issues still. It still hurts to move, still hurts to walk. My 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 joints and muscles almost burn constantly. But with the CBD helping, it, I can actually have movement again. So I actually have full range of motion of my arm again uh, before I didn't. So it does, does help. I am improving. Um, I just got to take one day at a time and move forward. Well, one day at a time. Jeremy, great way to live life for sure. I hope things continue to improve for you, and good luck with everything. Again, we'll be following this along. Thank you. I appreciate your time. That's Jeremy Smith from London. And if you missed the beginning, this is an interview that we can have on our website a little later, 980cfpl.ca, or you can actually go and look at Andrew Graham's story, and a lot of similar information is there. You can search London, Ontario Man Wants Canada to Allow Cannabis Restaurants and Cafes, or you can find it at 980cfpl.ca. And if you missed it, Jeremy has a type of Crohn's, was diagnosed with that, but ultimately that led to, and using some of the medications to treat it, led to blood clots in his lungs, one that got either, well, it sounds like, near his heart um, and caused all kinds of problems. And then more medication caused more problems. And CBD oil is something that certainly has helped, and yet you need a petition in order to say, okay, how, how do we distribute this if we're going to put it into food that isn't gummy bears or some of the other things that are made available since cannabis has been legalized in canada and that's something he has looked at so jeremy smith google that and global news and you'll probably get that story if you missed any part of it because it's a remarkable story and it's not even close to being over thanks to jeremy himself A lot of parents of Olympic athletes are watching from an ocean away because they cannot be in Tokyo. Athletes are going in, competing, and leaving quite quickly. That's been the ask from the organizers of the Tokyo Games, but they got underway this morning. And there was Londoner Miranda I.M., who was walking alongside Canada's flag as one of Canada's co-flag bearers. And when we talked with Miranda's dad, Gus, a little while ago, we talked about getting up early, staying up late. The basketball schedule is a bit of a tough one. There are some either early mornings or late nights. The swimming schedule, it, it might actually, I don't, it's still getting up early and still staying up kind of late. But we'll see how the schedule looks from the eyes of people who will be taking in every second of it right now. Please welcome the parents of Maggie McNeil, who is set to swim this weekend for Canada in Tokyo, Susan McNair and Edward McNeil. Susan and Edward, how are things? Good. Good. Hello. Nice to be with you. Great to have you here. Well, Susan, how about the schedule? Is it at least, I don't see any 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. swims. Am I missing one of those? No, not at all. I think we're pretty lucky. They're like 6, 6.30 in the morning and then you know, nine thirty to kind of eleven thirty at night. So they're they're pretty reasonable, I think. Well, Edward, what's the plan? Where are you guys going to be watching this? Because unfortunately, you can't be in Tokyo. No, we're getting together with uh, family who live locally. 
um, actually, and, and some who have are home for the summer, and we're just getting together with family to watch together. So that's, that's the plan. Hey, nice. Nice socially distanced Olympics viewing party. Of course, that's what it would be in 2021 for the 2020 Games. Let's talk about Maggie's career. Susan, things seem to have hit the gas. I mean, you look back to before 2019, and Maggie's always been a great swimmer, but she took three seconds off her 100-meter butterfly time. Can you point to anything thinking back that may have, you know, caused that to happen? Well, I think immediately preceding that world event when she became the world champion and took that time off, she had made the transition to Michigan and was swimming at the university level. And, you know, I think that she was kind of developmentally at a time when she was ready to make a transition to a kind of a new area and a a new coach. And she made that transition and was swimming, of course, with – with kids who were swimming at a very fast level. And I think that all contributed that training to that. Um, and I think she was just maturing kind of psychologically as well and probably getting more competitive as well. Edward, the butterfly is not the easiest stroke in the world. Where did Maggie develop her command of the butterfly or her love for the butterfly? Well, it certainly didn't come from me. I'll put that out there right away. Um, <laughs> Uh, she, we were very, very fortunate that Maggie always had some very good teachers. She started with a group um, uh, called the Excel Swim uh, Team, and that was run by Paul Midgley, who's the, who's the coach of, of the UWO team. And then he, he gave her some training, and then she moved on to the London Aquatic Club, and the London Aquatic Club has been amazing. Wow. Well, they're getting set. They've rented out a drive-in theater in order to watch Maggie's race this weekend, which is tremendous. We're talking with Edward and Susan, Maggie McNeil's parents, about this weekend. Susan, not being able to be in Tokyo, tell us about that. Well, it's very difficult to tell you. However, we were saying to one another a couple of hours ago that we're probably communicating with her more, being the fact that we're in Canada, than we would have necessarily if we'd been there. So she's been calling a lot and FaceTiming a lot, but um, but it has been difficult not to be there for sure. You just you just like to. Uh, we were thinking saying that this morning we're watching the opening. How wonderful it would have been to have been there and watching it all. But um, but I think she herself is doing great, and she sounds. She sounds positive, and she's just having a wonderful time with the Canadian team. Good. That's good to know because you you never really get that behind-the-scenes info as to how things are going with everything being just a, a little bit different and no fans and a different athlete's yeah. village and different experience. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. She's, she's feeling good going into this weekend. Now, Edward, is it just the butterfly that Maggie will be swimming, or is she participating in relay events as well? Well, she's uh, slated to do uh, the 4x100 freestyle relay and also the 4x100 medley relay. Now, the freestyle relay is also right off the bat, too. So she's got the butterfly and the freestyle relay very close together. And then I think she has about a week until she does the medley relay. Yeah, that has her there pretty pretty much throughout the games, the way that it is going to work. Susan, is that pretty normal for any meet? I mean, for us, it sounds exhausting that you would think, wow, you're, you're swimming you know, heats and then potentially a semi and potentially a final in one event. You're also swimming relay. Is that just kind of normal for swimmers? 
Well, you know, ideally they'd be nice if they were spread out through the week, right? So where she had kind of a day in between them. She's got the um, butterfly and the and the four by one hundred uh, freestyle relay kind of right happening on the same couple of days. So it'll be pretty intense. But I I get the sense with her that with most swimmers that once they're uh, once their adrenaline starts flowing, they can they seem to be able to manage it. Susan McNair, Edward McNeil, Maggie McNeil's parents as we talk about this weekend where Maggie McNeil will be swimming the 100-meter butterfly starting tomorrow in heats that if she's in the first heat, she could be in the pool at 6.28 hour time and then the rest of the heats do go after that and then things progress to the semi tomorrow night and the final on Sunday night and interspersed in between all of those is the 4x100-meter freestyle relay. Just want to get both of your thoughts on this. You have an Olympian in the family. You already have a world champion in the family. That that probably had a nice ring to it for a while. But Edward, your daughter at the Olympics. Tell us what that's like. Um, you know what? I'm sure the term is overused, but surreal is what it, it describes it to a T. It's just something. Every every step is new, right? And this one for us is new as well. So it's it's surreal. We're very wow. proud of her, and we're very happy of her. We're, we're quite in awe of her, to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and yet she is somebody that when you talk to her, you know, it, it's just like, yeah, this this is just what I do. Susan, where does that come from? Yeah, she's, you know, by nature, she's always been like that, right? She's she's fo- she's very focused, and, you know, she, she doesn't get nervous, for sure, you know, but she um, she seems to be able to keep it under wraps, and she... You know, she's. I think she's fairly. I hope she's fairly modest by nature, and she takes this kind of in stride. And she, uh, and I think she gives it her all. So I think you know, it's just kind of innately who she who she is. And hopefully, we've been able to nurture her along the way as well. Well, the two of you have been able to raise one of Canada's top athletes and a great person out of the water as well. So congratulations to the two of you. Enjoy this weekend, and uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, this yeah, this is will. just exciting. <laughs> Who knows? We'll see what next where we are a week from now. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Take care, both of you, and enjoy. Have yeah, have a great care. weekend. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. That's Edward McNeil and Susan McNair, Maggie McNeil's parents. And Maggie is just somebody who, like they say, is, you know, as modest as they come. She really is. And yet, as talented as there is, to be able to stand on the blocks. This is my favorite Maggie McNeil story to this point. You're on the blocks at the World Aquatic Championships. You look over. The world record holder is swimming against you. And you're 19. 19 years old, and yet you look over on the blocks, world record holder is there, and you jump in and you have the swim of your life, and you win gold at those world championships. Whew. Be a fun weekend. We'll look forward to that. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 